go ahead and open up to John chapter 4. We have a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to focus more on certain parts than others. We'll try to get through it all today. And let me start with a question. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? Those, those times that you think, if I don't get a drink of water right now, something very bad is going to happen. I need to quench this thirst. I've read stories of people lost at sea. And I, I, from my understanding, that's really the biggest danger, is the lack of water, which the irony of that is they're surrounded by water, of course. And you read stories of what these people go through and what goes through their mind. At some point, they think it's right there. At least if I could just get it on my tongue, if I could just get it on my lips, it will make me feel better. But of course, salt water won't make you feel better. Well, sure, there's a little bit of liquid going in. There's a little bit of it kind of making your tongue feel better for a second. But that salt water then goes into the body and it actually pulls water out of the cells pulls water out of your body, so it has the reverse effect. As you drink salt water, you get more dehydrated, more thirsty, and of course, then you might drink more, and so on and so forth. I think we do the same in life sometimes. We have a thirst, we have a need, we, we have some desire in our life. It might be specific or just a general, I don't know what I want, but I'm looking for something. And so we look in the world around us to fill those desires. How can I meet this need? How can I feel better? And we take our little ladle, our cup, our bucket, and we dip it into the waters around us. And some of those things are dangerous. Some of those things that say they will meet those needs actually make the need worse. Some maybe satisfy for a while. But today, we're going to look at a deeper need. Today, we're going to read about a discussion and look at a discussion between Jesus and a woman. And it's a pretty casual conversation that centers around water and drinking. But there's something so much deeper going on as Jesus is discussing with her about a need she understands and recognizes, but he's using that to go deeper to help her to see her greater need for salvation through him. And so I want to make sure that we don't miss what's going on in this passage about Jesus Christ as he talks with this woman. And so as we enter into this passage, we see that there's a divine encounter between Jesus and this woman. Let me read for us verses 1 through 9. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Let me just stop there. This is... If you're writing a story or a movie or something, that the plot just thickened, right? So there's this conflict that's going on. The Jewish leaders are watching Jesus and his ministry and his disciples, and that ministry, his influence, is growing. If you remember from previous chapters, the religious leaders were somewhat concerned about John the Baptist. He was developing quite a following. Jesus comes on the scene, and a lot of people that were following John the Baptist, plus others, are now following Jesus, which is exactly what John the Baptist wanted. That was the whole point of his ministry. Well, if they were concerned about John the Baptist, how much more so are they concerned about Jesus? These guys wield the power, especially in and around Jerusalem. 
In fact, this conflict between Jesus and these religious leaders will escalate and escalate and escalate throughout the gospel to the point where they will put him on trial, put him on a cross, and crucify him. So there's the conflict. It's this cosmic conflict, this plan of God between the forces of this world and His Son, and all this is going on, and now we're going to take a break in that action. We're going to go to a very personal encounter between Jesus and this woman. And I love how God does that. He says, yeah, I'm carrying on my plan, but don't miss this over here. That plan, it's not really about that conflict. The real conflict that's going on is in people's hearts. And what they're looking to for life and how Jesus can bring them life. And so we're introduced to this woman. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The story that we're going to look at here is is told in three parts, and the bulk of it that we're going to look at is this encounter, this dialogue between Jesus and this woman that he meets at the well. After that, she's going to leave for a while to go back to town, and there'll be a discussion with his disciples, and then she's going to come back with the town, and we'll see the fruit of what happens throughout this story. But the first thing that we're introduced to in this story is Jesus and his interaction with this woman, and we learn some things about them. And some of these things are absolutely stunning. And and it's hard, I think, in our contemporary culture to understand just how stunning they are. The way that Jesus treats this woman is completely countercultural. It would not have made sense to the people of his day. It goes against all of their social norms. He should not, as a Jewish man, and especially as a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, he should not have been even speaking to a woman. They didn't do that. As a Jewish person, he would never have spoken to a Samaritan woman or a Samaritan at all. And then further on, he would never have asked for a drink. The moment she touched the vessel that that water would have been delivered to him is the moment that water would have been unclean, and he as a Jewish rabbi should not have even had it to drink. And yet he asks her. And as we'll see in a moment, there's even more going on. What is stunning here is the way Jesus treats what we might call the outcast. Because in that society, women were often an outcast. And yet, in the Gospel of John in particular, John is very deliberate in including these stories about Jesus and women and how he treats them with love and dignity and respect. In chapter 11, we'll see how Jesus gently and lovingly interacts with Mary and Martha at a very difficult time in their life when Lazarus has passed away. In John chapter 12, we'll see another instance where Jesus respectfully treats a a sinful woman who has come to him. In another instance, in John 20, what I think is the most powerful, John specifically records that the first witnesses to the resurrection of the Son of God are women. Now, Now, what's profound there 
is that legally women could not testify in court. That meant if you wanted to have somebody give a legal testimony to something, you would not have it be women. But God says, no, I don't work that way. I treat people differently. And John puts in there that women were the first to see the risen Lord. But not only is the person that Jesus speaks with here a a woman, but a Samaritan woman. The Jews hated Samaritans. They were a reminder of some of the worst times of Jewish history. When, before Jesus was even born in Bethlehem, when before Mary and Joseph come on the scene, long before that, in the history of Israel, there was a civil war, and the northern kingdom rose up against the southern kingdom. And as time went on, the northern kingdom became increasingly corrupt, and God brings a foreign army in. The Assyrians come in, and they conquer the northern kingdom. And the way Assyria worked when they conquered a kingdom is that they would take a lot of the people from that kingdom into exile, and then they would bring foreigners in and settle them there. And this is how they kept their empire from revolting against them. People never really knew their neighbors that well because they were being moved around so much. Well, what happens over time then is that the Jewish people that were left in that northern kingdom intermarry with the outsiders that came in. Their religions intermixed. And so you have this race of Samaritans that were not completely of Jewish descent. Their religion, their Jewish religion, had been influenced by all these outside religions And as the Jewish people looked at them, they reminded them of one of the worst failures of their history when they were conquered and overthrown because they had been unfaithful to the Lord. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans. So not only is she a woman, but a Samaritan woman, but she's also a sinful Samaritan woman. She's there at noon. John says she came to the well to draw water at noon. In in their reckoning of time, this was kind of when the sun was at the highest point of the day. This was the time that it was the hottest. The women didn't go to the wells to draw water at noon. They went in the morning when it was still cool to get water from the day. They would often go in evening to get it for the evening meal. You didn't go at noon unless it was too uncomfortable to go another time. She's there at noon because she bears shame in her life. She's too embarrassed, or possibly if she had shown up when the other women were there, they would not have even allowed her to draw water because she bears a lot of shame in her life. And we'll look at that in a moment. But what's amazing is the way Jesus treats her. He treats her with absolute dignity and respect. Not saying that what she did was okay, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but he still speaks to her in loving, respectful ways. And and I just, I like as we walk through a text to make some side applications here. The gospel confronts the world's prejudices. It has to. It's a different way of looking at the world. When people say, are are you on this side of, of some social or cultural political spectrum or on this side? Your answer, friends, followers of Jesus Christ is no. Neither. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And the gospel confronts all sides of all spectrums of prejudice in our world. And we as Christians must see through the lens of that gospel and be ready and willing to confront prejudices in the world and in our own heart. We cannot accept the world's labels and treatment of other people. 
We have to see through the worldview of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We also can't accept our own labels. Maybe you've had experience with certain people groups. All those people are this way. No, don't do that. Let the gospel come through. Do you remember in John 3.16 where it said, For God so loved the world? That means something. That means God looked at the rebellious, sinful world that was living in active rebellion against him that said, we don't even want you to be our God. He looked at that world and he said, I love you. If that's the way our God loves us, should we not love other people the same way? But also, maybe you're here today and you think, maybe you know, you're one of those outcasts. Maybe it's because of things in your life that people know or maybe things they don't know and you're afraid that they would know. Maybe it's things that you say, I can't be loved because of this and this and this. And you say, I'm an outcast. Man, this story's for you. Look at how Jesus loves this woman. Look at how he treats her. And this is just one of many examples throughout the gospel, the way the Son of God treats people that society wanted nothing to do with. The conversation is going to revolve around water, what Jesus is going to call living water. Look at verses 10 to 14. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Notice how Jesus takes something that is part of her day-to-day existence. And and even more than her day-to-day existence, her day-to-day struggle. I have to imagine that every time she came to that well, as the sweat poured off her and she thought, why do I have to do this now? It was a constant daily reminder of her own shame. And Jesus takes that thing right where she is, right what she's thinking right then, and he's going to use that to engage with her and to point her to her need for him. It's a beautiful picture of good evangelism. You want to share the love of Jesus with somebody? Get to know them. Find out what's going on in their life. It doesn't have to be a huge, long conversation. You don't have to wait months and months and months, but just ask them, how are you doing? I I know too many Christians that when they want to share Jesus with somebody, they'll say, hey, my name is so-and-so. Yeah, How are you? Okay, good. That's great. Let's, Let's talk about Jesus now. It's like none of that matters. We don't need to deal with that. I just want to get to the main issue. We need to love people. Look at how Jesus treated people. Now, like so many others in the Gospel of John, she's going to miss what he's talking about, which is understandable, and and he doesn't berate her for that. He's building something here, and he's helping her to understand what he's doing. Jesus is talking about a deeper spiritual need. She's trying to get past this idea that she needs a drink of water. And so he says that she should have asked him, and he would have given living water. What does living water mean? On one level, kind of a a physical level, living water is simply moving water. 
in their culture, living water was a stream, a river, or a spring. It was something that was a source, an unending, ongoing source of water. Lakes could dry up, cisterns could run dry, but springs and rivers in general, unless there was a major problem, could keep going. And so that's one level. But the other level that he's getting to is this idea that it's life-giving water. If you're a farmer and you've got to haul water out into your fields from a cistern or from a lake, that's a lot of work. But if you have a river running through your your farm that brings water constantly, it is ongoing. It is an ongoing source of life for your crops. It gives life unending. And Jesus is saying to her, I have that to offer you. I have an unending, life-giving water that you could ask me about. Now, she's wondering about this. She's getting that, that something deeper is going on here, and so she has some questions. Look at verses 11 to 12. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? She's questioning his claims. If you've ever tried to share the gospel with somebody, the truth about Jesus Christ, be ready for questions. And and don't get upset. People have questions. They're trying to absorb this truth that goes beyond what we uh, usually think about or understand. And so she has some questions. Now, Jacob's well is actually still there today. It's very ancient. Uh, They have gone down to the depths of it. It's well over 100 feet deep. It has been a constant source of water since the time of Jacob until today. They say that it's fed by a spring in the bottom. So there's living water coming in and filling up this well. Now, if he's offering to give her living water, assuming she understood this, she's thinking he's got a bucket and a rope that can go down deep enough to get the water straight from that spring to pull it up. And she's going, I don't see it. Where's your bucket? She's trying to process this in a way that makes sense for her. But along with that, they took great pride that this well had been dug by Jacob all the way back in the Old Testament. This was in the roots of their culture. They took great pride in it. And she's saying, if he gave us this well, who do you think you are? It's a good question. Who does Jesus think he is? Look at verses 13 to 15. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come keep coming here to draw water. She's beginning to get it. And she's all in. Man, I want that. I think if we could talk to her, she would say, I'm not quite sure what he's saying, but I want that because I'm tired of coming here in the middle of the day through my shame to draw water so that I can survive. If I can have an unending source of life-giving water, I want that. Notice that Jesus doesn't get caught up in this historical, cultural debate. He doesn't talk about who's greater than who. He just says, I have something to offer you that is better than what you're looking for. I have water that satisfies forever, that can become a spring, not just a a source that you can go to, but something inside of you that you no longer have to look into the culture and the surrounding area. You can have life welling up inside of you. And as we'll see later, 
that spring of life has another effect. It runs over into our relationships, into our culture, into our communities, our families. And in verse 15, she wants this water. And Jesus says this in verses 16 to 18. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have had no, or you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. I'm wearing a sweater today. Sometimes when you're wearing a sweater, you get a little string that's poking out. And when you pull on that string, a whole bunch of stuff can begin to unravel. This is what Jesus is doing with a particular issue in her life. There's a little thread, and he knows about it as the Son of God. And it's a sore point in her heart, but it's something that needs to be dealt with. And in his love and his grace and his mercy, he's pulling at that thread just a little bit to say, you need to let me deal with this. This is the source of her shame. She has had five husbands and is currently not married to the man she's living with. There's a lot of possibilities, or actually two main possibilities that I see, for what this could mean. One is that she is an unfaithful wife. That she has been unfaithful to five husbands and she's now in a relationship with somebody and living with them that she's not married to. And this is how I've always approached this. And and a lot of the reading I've done, a lot of people approach it the same way. And this could be true, that, that she bears guilt and later on she'll say to people, look at someone who tells me everything I have done. She seems to understand that she bears some ownership for what she has done that's wrong. If this is true, you can understand the shame. She would have been known in this town. She, she would have been known in the area. She would have borne the shame of that her whole or the rest of her life. But I think there's another possibility. Because as I was reading this, even just this morning, I was looking at it and I I was thinking about the Old Testament law. The Samaritans held to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch is very clear what you do with someone who's caught in adultery. You kill them. It's, It's very clear. We also know from history that they were somewhat selective in applying that, but in general, they were fairly consistent in applying it to women. Sorry. But, but women, if they were caught in adultery, they often gave the man a pass. I'm not saying this is what God said. I'm just saying this is what they did. But, but culturally, I, I don't know if she had been unfaithful five times. I don't think we'd be reading this story. I could be wrong. They were often selective, as I said. But there is another possibility. Because in that culture, they had developed a culture of divorce where somebody, especially the man in general, could say to his wife, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And he could cut off the marriage. And, and I, as I read this, and I thought about it from a different perspective, I thought, it's possible this woman, five times, had been rejected. Five times she had fallen in love, met a man, or arranged, or however they did it, but she had lived with them, and, and five times, and, and maybe it's a mix. Maybe some she had been unfaithful, maybe some she had been rejected. But either way, think about it. This woman, in her own eyes and in the eyes of the world, is damaged goods. She's a broken, shameful woman. The shame of either of those situations would have followed her every day and touched everything that she did. 
Either way, Jesus is getting to her heart issue. Because she has been looking in multiple relationships for fulfillment. She has been hoping there to make that connection, to heal that wound in her heart. She has been taking her ladle, her bucket, and dipping it into the salt water of these relationships around her, hoping it would satisfy her thirst. And Jesus is pulling at that string and saying, you will never be satisfied in these things. He's looking at her as he looks to us and says, you need me. We need Jesus. Now, Jesus has touched a nerve. And it's possible she wants to change the subject. He has also just clearly demonstrated to her he's not just some random guy that she's meeting at the well. He knows things that she hasn't told him. There's something special about this guy. And so she has another question, verses 19 to 24. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. She's asking about where to worship. Because the Samaritans could not go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, because Samaritans and Jews hated each other, the Samaritans set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And they worshiped there. And and they had twisted and distorted the Old Testament law and and practices and kind of made up their own uh, way of worshiping God. But she's asking, I was taught this. Go there. This is the way to worship God. And yet your people, the Jewish people, say this is the way to worship God. She wants this prophet to solve this problem for her. And again, Jesus is lovingly pointing out that she's missing the point. The point is not about the location worship. It's about the heart of the worshiper. It's not about a set of rituals and practices or go to this place and do that or go to this place and do that. He says, no, it's about something much deeper. Worship in spirit and in truth. What in the world is he talking about? I hear a lot of Christians take this idea of worshiping in the Spirit and and they take it as this ecstatic, emotional, intensely personal idea. I'm worshiping in the Spirit and my Spirit's different than your Spirit. My experience is different than your Spirit. That's not what this is about. When you come to Scripture, you have to let Scripture define Scripture. And the best way to do that is find how the author uses that word elsewhere. And so if we just go back to John chapter 3 and Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, Jesus uses this idea. John chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus tells Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. And he's telling Nicodemus about this idea of being born again, being saved. And he's saying you you have a physical birth, but you need to be born again spiritually, new life in Jesus Christ. And so if we bring that into this passage, what Jesus is saying to her, it's not about what mountain you worship on. 
It's about who rules in your heart. Have you accepted God's way? Are you trusting in God's way? And he's about to tell her, I am the Messiah. I'm the bringer of salvation. And so what she's being confronted here with is whether or not she's going to accept Jesus as her Savior. To worship in the Spirit means to worship out of new birth in Jesus Christ. And, and then he says, and in truth. Now this doesn't mean, hey, here's your menu of options. You can worship in Spirit or you can worship in truth. No, it's together. New life in Jesus Christ coupled with the truth of Scripture and who Jesus is. And you bring that together in worship and it is powerful. That's why we we try hard in our songs here to make sure that they are written according to the Word of God, expressing good theology and belief, and that they're written out of and help us to express our new relationship in God through Jesus Christ. Worship in the Spirit and in truth. And the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. And then look at verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now they've gotten to the heart of the matter. Here's the source of life, the source of new life, the source of eternal life. And he's saying, we're not really talking about water. We're talking about me, Jesus Christ. Some people will say, and maybe you've heard this, Jesus never really claimed to be this religious leader. He was just a good prophet. and He just went around and taught good things. His followers have really blown it way out of proportion. He never wanted to be this big deal. Look at John 4, 26. That blows that argument out of the water. He clearly says, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I am the Savior of the world. That's what that means. He claims right there to be the Messiah. Living water. And that water has an effect. As we move through the rest of this chapter or this passage quickly here, this woman goes off to tell the people of the town. Verse 28, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, just understand, again, the enormity of what's going on here. This woman who was so embarrassed to interact with other people from the town, that she chose the hottest part of the day to go to a well to make sure she didn't run into anybody else, is now going back and running through the streets of that very town saying, come here, listen to me. And she's even saying, he told me everything I ever did. Can you imagine what they thought when she said that? Really? Everything? Are you sure? Because we know what that is. Maybe we'll go and check this out. Something bigger than her shame has come. And it's overflowing now in her life. She doesn't necessarily have all the answers, but she knows she can't keep this to herself. Living water overflows. It it reaches out in our life and affects those around us. And then there's this interesting discussion between Jesus and his disciples. And let me just summarize it for the sake of time. They had gone off to get food and they come back and they're basically saying, Jesus, come on, eat. And he says, no, I have food that you know nothing about. And they're looking at each other going, who gave him food? 
Where do you get the takeout from? Where, where is it? Because again, like the woman with the water, they don't quite get it. He's talking about something deeper. In verse 34, he says, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. He says, look, you guys understand farming. This is pretty straightforward. You plant a seed, you wait about four months, you get a crop. He says, but in God's kingdom, things are working different. Because I just planted a seed and it's blooming right now and it's ready to harvest and you guys need to step it up. Things don't always operate on our timing. And if I could, the opposite is sometimes true. Because he says, one plants and another one reaps and sometimes you're reaping those that you haven't planted. Sometimes you may be the one sharing the gospel with somebody. And you want them to receive Jesus Christ right then and there. It may not be for years later, that somebody else will stand with them, kneel with them, and pray for them to receive Jesus. You might be the one praying for somebody that you've shared the gospel with or somebody else has shared the gospel with, and you're in the middle there. You, maybe you weren't the sower, and you don't get to be the reaper, but you're just the one nurturing that relationship and praying with them, and you may not see the fruit of it. Someday somebody might come to you with questions about Jesus that they've heard somewhere else and they're ready to discuss this and pray it. And you stand there and you might think, look at me, I led this person to the Lord. Stop yourself and just say, that's all God. I was just part of something so much bigger than myself. But don't miss what he's saying to his disciples. His greatest need, their greatest need, is not for food, it's to do the Lord's will. He says, you're looking for satisfaction. You're looking for sustenance. Do the Lord's will. And the town responds. They come out because of Jesus, or because of this woman's testimony. And Jesus ends up staying with them two days. And they say to the woman, we first believe because of what you said. Now we believe because we've met him for ourselves. The overflowing, life-giving water. Friends, I think we're all looking for living water. We all want something that satisfies. And we spend our days, we spend our times searching and searching and searching. Some have never received Christ. And maybe you're here and you've never come to know Jesus as your Savior. You've never accepted Him, but you are searching for something meaningful I'm going to invite you, just as Jesus did to this woman, come to Jesus. Accept who He is. Let he, let Him become that spring of water welling up in your life for eternal life. Some of you, some of us are like the disciples. We've, we've accepted and we're following, but we get distracted too. And we need to be reminded. We need to do the Lord's will. We need to be obedient to who He is. We need to reach out to others. We need to quit just focusing on ourselves and serve others for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's also a bigger picture here. And I want to leave you with this. Did you know there's an ongoing theme of men meeting women at wells in the Bible? 
you're having a hard time finding somebody to date, just find a well and hang out. It's, it's very biblical. Don't do that. Genesis chapter 24, Abraham's servant finds a bride for Isaac. Genesis 29, Jacob finds his future wife Rachel at a well. Exodus 2, Moses meets his future wife at a well. You might be saying, oh, that's just random occurrence. A a guy meeting his future wife through an engagement at a well. But look back to John chapter 3. Do you remember John the Baptist, how he referred to himself in his ministry? He said, I am the friend of the what? The bridegroom. We would say the groom. I'm just the, I'm the friend of the groom. He's the groom and he's here and, and I'm excited that he's here and he's talking about Jesus Christ. And so John, the gospel writer, has just introduced this idea of Jesus, the groom, and then he goes to this picture of Jesus meeting a woman at the well. Now, I'm not talking about Jesus going to marry this woman, okay? That's not where this is going. But the picture in scripture is that Jesus is preparing a bride. And that bride are all of his people. Anybody that will receive him in faith as their savior. And Revelation ends with Jesus coming back to meet and claim his bride. His people saved by him forever and ever. And this beautiful mammoth picture of God's work in eternity saving people to be the bride of Christ is put into this perfect, beautiful picture of Jesus talking to a Samaritan sinful woman at a well. And friends, if Jesus can change her life, he can change ours too. That same plan is still going on today. And Jesus, through the gospel, through his word, is meeting us at wherever we are today in our shame and our difficulties. And he's saying, your greatest need is for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, It's hard to be reminded of a need. It's hard to be reminded that we look for satisfaction in wrong places. It's hard to be told that what we're doing is wrong. And yet it is so loving to graciously, gently, and respectfully, as Jesus does here, talk to somebody about their need and point them to where they can have that need met. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here with a deep need in their life that they are seeking to fill in whatever other way they might have, may they seek You. May they accept You as their Savior. And may we then live as that overflowing spring works itself out in our life. May we have that effect on other people to draw them to you, to point them to you that they may be saved. And Father, as we're about to take communion, I pray this would be a reminder and a celebration and a recognition of the day we met you in our sin and our shame and we accepted you as our Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen.